you know, to get to the final, the, the TV ratings were astronomical at that point. Uh, those are just big moments, you know. You, you know they're big at the time. You just don't realize that 30 years later or 40 or 50, people will still be talking about it. This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by college soccer coaches Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. Here they are, Ralph and Ray. All right, Ray, you ready? I'm ready, sir. We're going to talk to J.P. Delacameron in a few minutes here. But Ray, let's start with this. Let's, let's talk about the soccer evolution in the media. And what do you remember of soccer and the sports media growing up, how it's changed? What I remember is watching Pele on Wide World of Sports once a year. And then probably when I was a teenager, the only game that I remember seeing would be the soccer ball or the final. I remember Arsene August, the Haitian national player, hitting a BB for my 35 yards for Tampa Bay Rowdies to win it the year they won it. I remember Stevie Hunt picking the pocket, and I'm not sure if it was Tony Chersky. Back in the day, the keeper used his hands, and he put it on the ground and rolled it. Hunt came from behind in the final, from behind him off the end line, took the ball and scored. I remember, I remember the game being once once a week, once a week if you're lucky, and then I remember on Sun, uh, Saturday evening, 6 o'clock, Toby Charles, soccer man in Germany, one Bundesliga match a week. That was it, you know, as far as television media. Forget paper and print. There was nothing ever in the newspapers. How about you? Well, you know, listening to you talk, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to mind was when I was at Brentwood High School, a bunch of us were taken out on a bus to uh, Suffolk Community college to see the highlight of the 1966 World Cup. And uh, that was a great video. And then I remember that 1966 game live on Wild World Sports with Jim McKay doing it uh, with England versus West Germany. So that was a, like an indoctrination of soccer on TV. And But really what stands out to go on what you were chatting about is that um, I remember that game because I went to see my teammate Baruch Qureshi, who played for Tampa Bay Rowdies. The game was up at San Jose Spartan Stadium. And I saw it live when the Rowdies won it and against Portland Timbers. And I do remember the game with the Cosmos winning that one that you're talking about where Hunt. The only thing that really kind of helped us with uh, soccer going in the 70s was that show that you're talking about, Toby Charles, Soccer Made in Germany. And then also in L.A., uh, a PBS channel. Uh, with Mario Machado, uh, with English soccer, Star Soccer was called. We got that. And basically all the World Cup games from 66 going forward, 70, watching it at the New York Felt Forum, 74, the Sports Arena, 78 going back uh, to the Forum out here. We all watched it on the satellite. It really was something that, you know, that was the only way to see the world's biggest event, the World Cup itself. But uh, clearly for the 
generation, as we push forward to where we are presently, it was like today I left home, I taped six soccer games. You know, the Galaxy game tonight against, uh, they're playing tonight against Minnesota. Uh, LAFC's playing Dallas. They had the under-20 world uh, qualifiers for CONCACAF on TV. Uh, the women played last night uh, against Columbia. So you can find soccer, you know, all year round now on TV that's, you know, it's phenomenal where we are today to where we were growing up. That's right. That's right. And I, it's funny you bring about the fell form. I remember, I think you only see selected games at the fell form, though, right? Maybe the semis and final. I don't, you know, I don't think they had all the games. No, they just televised the knockouts because they knew people would pay to see the knockout games because obviously they're 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 meaningful and there's uh, an opportunity to see it. It was it, it really was uh, something to behold. Where now, you know, we've got a a World Cup coming up in November and every game is going to be televised by Fox. Uh, their their three networks, you know, so it's great, great for this generation. Well, look at the deal the MLS just signed with streaming, right? What are they signing for? They signed with Apple TV. $250 million a year for 10 years, is that correct? Something like that, just like when they signed that major contract 10, 10 years with Adidas a couple of years back. So, right. yeah, I mean, it's clearly an evolution that is incredible. We, I went to visit Nelson Rodriguez on my trip to New York, and I took two of my teammates there. They are now on their third floor. They have three floors in in Madison Avenue there off of Fifth Avenue uh, and 38th, right there in the big district where the NBA office, NFL, Major League Baseball, all there. They got 325 full-time employees working for Major League Soccer now, working on all aspects of the game. Wow. Yeah, it, it has changed dramatically. Look, look at the satellite radio, Tony Miola's show. Glenn Crooks' show, podcasts like we're doing, people doing all over the place, television, EPL, Serie A, streaming. I think the Bundesliga is now on ESPN. I mean, so many opportunities for young people, young players. And what, what has happened is I think the, the amount of soccer on TV has turned on the average fan, not, the, not, not as much the person who played soccer, but the average fan looking for something to follow. It seems like you go to a lot of these public showings of big events, and a lot of the people at this place never played soccer for in their life, but they they are in love. They are in love with the whole cult of it, and you know the uh, the uh, energy of it, and the the type the big events they put on. So certainly you got to commend Don Garber and MLS. Certainly you got to commend U.S. Soccer, the work of Sinio Galati, Hank Steinbrecher, and Alan Rothenberg to get us where we are today from a television and media standpoint. And obviously now with the, the new MLS deal in 2026 coming, I'm sure you're going to see have more and more inventory on television to watch. Well, I, as we know, we, we had Amanda Vandervoort on our show, the commissioner of the USL and the whole women's game is, is, is really become something uh, uh, to behold the game and the NWSL, the USL is going to have a nice pathway there from PDL right on up. going to be, a whole whole slew of teams coming into the league. She's going to do a fantastic job with that league to grow it and develop it even further. You know, MLS now is up to 28 teams in this league from when I started with 10. So that's a growth that's phenomenal. It covers the whole country now, East Coast, West Coast, the Midwest, and so forth. 
But the other thing that's pretty evident to me that as we go forward, we got to go back a little bit. And what kept soccer alive in this country was the major indoor soccer league. Uh, that league was the only pro league that we had. We had no outdoor league after the NASL folded. And 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 JP and Keith Tozier and Chef uh, Messian have taken over this league, uh, the indoor league. And that's where everybody that was a pro or inspired to play professionally played. And a matter of fact, we had a game, our U.S. national team against the indoor uh, in St. Louis Soccer Park. And uh, it was a heck of a game. I mean, they took us, you know, with Clavio and, and Precky on those teams uh, were, were great players. And uh, so indoor played a big role. And that was our game. It's uh, it, what I always tell people that don't know what indoor soccer is like. It's hockey, except now it's AstroTurf instead of ice. And uh, and they're playing the same kind of situation, except the goal is embedded into the the, the plexiglass walls, so there's nothing to be playing behind, which hockey has. But so, but they kept the game going, kept players to play professionally, and uh, until you know Major League Soccer came around in 1996. Yeah, it's. Uh, I remember going to see the New York Arrows play. Steve Jungle, Bronco Segoda, Carl Heinz Grinitz played for the Sting inside a little bit. You had the who was the player played for the Baltimore Blast. Uh, creation, possibly. Oh, Stanvankovic. Yeah, Stanvankovic, great player. And you had a bunch of great indoor players. Uh, God rest his soul. I think Chico Bora might have played a little bit. Yes, he did for Wichita Wings. Yeah, so you know, you're right. It was the only pathway for a period, and it kept it kept the game in front of people. At least you could see some type of pro level uh, situation. But JP has done a great job. I mean, not just behind the microphone and educating America and being the voice of our sport internationally and, and MLS. But obviously he's involved with keeping the indoor league alive with Shep and uh, Keith Tolja, as you mentioned before. You know, these guys have done a great job soccer, so at the forefront until we got the MLS going. All right. Let's get to our interview with JP. JP Della Cameron is known as the voice of U.S. soccer. In his 30 years as an analyst, he's called 15 World Cup games, including the 1999 Women's World Cup when the U.S. defeated China in penalty kick shootout. Now, in addition to working with Fox Sports, he's the president of communications and media with the major arena soccer league. JP once said in an interview that it was good for the game anytime soccer was ever mentioned. In an article or a podcast, I'm excited to remote the game with him today. Thanks for coming on, JP. For me, it's it's a thrill to just do this podcast. And for me, I I, I feel that JP, you you've called the you've been called the original voice of U.S. soccer. What's one game that stands out to you in the early days of your U.S. soccer career? Uh, wow. Uh, so many games to think back to, Ralph, but I would have to think that the, the game in Trinidad that you well remember, 1989 World Cup qualifier, U.S. had to win that game, Caligiuri's goal, etc. That's the game that stands out the most to me in terms of the early memories, but more so for the experience rather than the game. The game is more of a blur. I think I remember the Caligiuri goal mostly from seeing clips of it 
over the years, not so much calling the actual goal because it came from out of nowhere, Tab with the pass, and then then Caligiuri scoring from distance, and no one was really expecting it. But what I remember the most is uh, the whole atmosphere of, of Trinidad, getting down there on the airplane. In those days, there was no security really around, uh, not not real security as we know it today, surrounding the team. So when we got there, there were probably I want to say thousands, but at least hundreds of fans. They're all dressed in red, all yelling at the team, singing, chanting. I remember the noise around the hotel, the noise around the stadium, everyone dressed in red, people painting their houses red, their cars red. Like The atmosphere there was incredible. And as, as I'm sure you remember, Trinidad was expecting to win, Trinidad and Tobago. There was a national holiday for the following day which was no real holiday at all because they lost. Well, I, I think uh, you're right about a little bit of the blur. I mean, it's obviously over 30 years now. I was saying to myself, why is he even trying to shoot from there? Because he took it from his right foot to his left, which isn't his strongest foot. And then it was one of those, oh, no, oh, yes, <laughs> when it goes in. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I looked at Coach G and, and uh, we both just, it, 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 was a, it was a definite relief. Thanks for sharing that memory. Sure. JP, I, I have a question for you, but I'm going to deviate. I want to add to Ralph a little bit because Ralph won't say this. You know, I, I got a chance to watch that game, obviously, and I knew Ralph a little bit, knew Coach Gans, Brian Bliss, who played for us at Southern. I think that 90 team has been forgotten. You know, uh, we, we talked about Southern Connecticut. We were fortunate, our program won a bunch of championships, but we didn't win. We didn't win two through six. We didn't win the first one. And these guys, you know, Coach Gansler, Coach Perez, Hawks, Miola, Tab, they opened the door. I mean, who knows how our performance is in 94 without the experience of going to Italy and really getting a taste. And, you know, they were up against it with three good games. But I really think when I say U.S. soccer, I don't mean the Federation, Federation possibly. Everybody, I don't think people really come to grips with what the 1990 team, how they set the table for this, the 94 and the 94 World Cup set the table, certainly financially for the MLS and to get the cup back in 2026. 100%, 100% in agreement with you. Ralph was part of the coaching staff. Dr. Joe was part of the coaching staff. Bob Gansler, I don't think any of them ever got their due. You know, Bob took a very young team not a very experienced team there. There was some controversy, as you guys remember. Ricky Davis, a veteran, was left off of that team. That was big news then. You know, not as big as Landon being left off years later, but in those days, without social media, that was big news. So Bob took a young team there. Um, they learned by their mistakes. Um, they were very competitive, and that did set the stage, certainly for 1994. That experience um, helped them. In 1994, but I think all of those players and the coaching staff uh, never got their proper due because if if they went with a veteran team there, I, I don't think it would have changed anything. You know, would they have squeaked out a result? You know, that's debatable. But then, what would have happened in 1994 when we were on the world stage? We would never have looked like we did in '94 without that '90 team and and that effort. And those guys came through. That was great. Okay, so JP, one of your most famous calls was the '99 Women's World Cup when Brianna Scurry made the save, 
and everybody can remember vividly Brandy's uh, Chastain celebration. What do you remember from the, the lead up to the tournament, the tournament, and certainly that match? Well, we could do a whole show just on, on that one game, actually. But um, the actual tournament itself, the biggest decision that was made that was the most important was deciding to play games at the bigger stadiums because before the change was made, they were talking about playing in maybe college stadiums, maybe some nice high school stadiums because nobody knew what to expect. But the organizing committee made the decision that America is a, a big country. It's a, a big tournament country, big event country. And so the decision was made to go to the bigger stadiums. And I think we knew we were on the right track when that USA first game at the old Giant Stadium was sold out. We knew we were on our way to something. And then the momentum just kept building. You know, you you fast forward to that, that final game, or even before that, friends of mine had asked me, what would be a success for this World Cup? And I said, obviously, attendance, television ratings. And, and the question was, does the U.S. have to win this for it to be a success? And I said, no, they don't have to win it. But I think for momentum's sake, you know, they have to get to the final. On the day of the final, somebody asked me, did they have to win it? And I said, yes. <laughs> I said, I changed my mind. Yeah, they have to win it. I said, I still think it's a, a success for me, you know, to get to the final. The, the TV ratings were astronomical at that point. Attendance was, you know, they were selling out everywhere. But I thought some people would probably look at it as a bit of a negative if they didn't win it. I wasn't one of those. I thought still, if they got to the final, it's, it's a success. But I thought that's the exclamation point, you know, if they could win that final. And, and the day of the final, as you guys remember, it was probably in the 90s, probably felt like over 100 at field level. Um, the game had to go to extra time, you know, then a penalty kicks. Michelle Akers went down with, you know, one of many injuries. I'm not sure how she, how she lasted as long as she did. Uh, you know, the Scurry save, the Chastain goal, the Christine Lilly clearance off the line. You know, so many great memories from that. Um, when it happened, you knew it was a big event. But I still think even today when I look back at it, um, it's even bigger today than it was back then. And I think 10 years from now, when we look at it again, we'll say it's bigger than we thought because uh, those are just big moments. You know, you, you know they're big at the time. You just don't realize that 30 years later or 40 or 50, people will still be talking about it. What was the environment like for the final? I mean, it was, it was sold out, as we said. Traffic jam, um, you know, getting to the Rose Bowl was never easy, especially when, you know, like 100,000 people were going to it. Um, atmosphere was great. It was riveting. It was like, I'm not a boxing fan, but, but the game was like a boxing match. You know, one team led off with this punch, the other counters. You know, somebody takes a little momentum, the other one comes back. It was a riveting riveting game you know and by the time you get to to um, penalty kicks the emotional level was was so high and on each kick you know it elevated but i do remember this the best way i can describe it when somebody said you know after you call that goal and laid out you know what did you do and i said i became a fan like everyone else i was just watching watching the reaction of the players on the field you know both the winners and the losers uh, watching the fans in the stands. And for me, guys, time stood still. I can see that moment right now if I close my eyes. Time just stood still. It was as if I was taking a picture of what was on the field. And there are not many moments in your life, 
especially in sports, where you could say, you know, you could remember this event vividly. And, and that was one of them. I, time stood still for me. So uh, if you said to me, I, I laid out for, you know, a minute and a half, two minutes, three minutes, I have no idea how long it was. But it, it probably seemed like a, a much longer time for me because I was just enjoying the moment. Here's a question that I know you've done a lot of games and maybe you've given a lot of thought about this. But with the shortness of preparation time for these games, how do you think uh, that works? You know, when you're going to get three days and then you turn around and play three days. Uh, and obviously this round, it's not two games. It's three games in a sequence of that. It's a little different than it has been in the past where it could have been just one playing date. I know FIFA has tightened things up around the world. Yeah. What's your take on that, JP? I'm not a fan of the three games. Uh, I understand about COVID and, and the protocols and, and what this has done, but you know it's tough to get a window, a short window, when you're playing three games instead of two. I think two is difficult enough. I think the, the hardest part about getting a national team together as you know, Ralph, from your own experience, is that you only have these guys for a short period of time. That's why a lot of coaches, you know, prefer the club team because you're with these guys every day, and you can you can teach, you can coach, you know, you can learn and grow together. National team is so much more difficult, and there's so much more pressure. Um, you know, when when you hear about um, other countries, you know, forget the U.S., but like a, a Brazil, a, a Mexico, an Argentina. Um, you know, they have a couple of bad results and are always talking about firing a coach. You know, we, we tend to have more patience here, you know, with our U.S. national team than they do in some of these other countries. But I think that it's always going to be difficult. I think World Cup qualifying needs to be looked at. I mean, hopefully the pandemic is in the, in the rearview mirror. But, you know, I think we are playing too many games, uh, too many games that don't count. Um, you know, South American qualifying is ridiculous. You know, it's like... Uh, more than like two years, right? They play, what is it, 18 games? You know, to it's way too many games in, in all of our competitions. And I think that health and safety of the players should be the most important thing. And I think that's fallen by the wayside. KP, we had we a had chance to have Carly Lloyd on our show when we spoke with her a bit about the culture within the women's national team. And you've covered so many men and women national team events you think it's okay to have rivalries within the team? Do you think that helps the team? Or do you think that can cause problems at when you're dealing, as you just said, with a national team that comes together here and there and not a full-time club? Yeah, Carly is one of my favorite players um, that I've ever covered. Um, such a competitor. I'm sorry that she has left the game when she's still actually, despite being close to 40, you know, still has something to give to the game. I mean, she was still playing at a high level when she decided to retire. But I, I think, you know, what Carly was talking about, you know, is something within the team. I think we see it more on the women's side because I, I think that they are, not that the men are not competitive, they obviously are, but on the women's side, um, you have so many great players that are still playing at a high level despite getting older. And you've got some of these younger players that really need a chance to grow. So the competition, I think, on the women's side is very healthy. I think that they, you know, that they do get along from what I know. I mean, we're not allowed to, since COVID, we've had very little contact with teams. You know, you, you do the Zoom calls, but you don't get to have as many, let's say, off-the-record conversations or see things in training that you used to be able to spot. 
So I think that, you know, healthy competition is always good. I think on the men's side, we also have it even more so today because uh, unlike on the women's side, I, I don't think we have the same balance. I, I think most of the players on our men's side are at a uh, comparative age. You know, we have so much young talent on the men's side, more, um, maybe a higher percentage of that than we do on the women's side where it was more balanced for years. But I think healthy competition is good. I think that especially like at the goalkeeper position, right? You have three goalkeepers and only one of them is really going to play. So there has to be a, there has to be a, a fine line between trying to beat someone out for the job and being a good teammate. And I, I think the better players know how to do that. It's a, it's a tough thing here with our women's team being so successful, you know, winning back-to-back World Cups under Jill Ellis. But going forward, as you have mentioned, would you see any changes that you'd like to see in that process uh, that you just elaborated a little bit on? I think the only change we'll see is a natural change, and that's to see some of the younger players get more playing time, whether it's starting or getting more minutes off the bench. I mean, it's it's inevitable, right? Um, we all knew Carly Lloyd was going to say goodbye to the game at some point. We just didn't know when. You know, you could say the same for uh, a Megan Rapino, a Tobin Heath, um, other names that might, Becky Sauerbrunn. You know, we have a lot of players. We had them in 2019 that were over the age of 30. And then you have young players that want more playing time, like a Katarina Macario, for example, Sophia Smith, Alana Cook. You know, there's so many others. And there's other names that, uh, a Trinity Rodman, you know, these players need to play at some point. So I don't envy Blatko Andonovsky in, in one way. I mean, I envy him because he has a lot of talent, and that's a better thing to have, right? Have too much talent and have to make those tough decisions than to be looking at your squad and saying, who do I play here? I mean, I don't have anybody good at this position or that position. I mean, the U.S. women's team is loaded, and I think the toughest thing is to decide how to phase out veterans, when to phase out veterans. You know, players still have something to give. So, uh, again, tough choices for Vladko. I'm glad he's making them, and and I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> JP, as far as I go, any any major national team event on the male or female side, you've been associated with it. And we did a little research, 15 World Cups. I think you've done nine for the men, six for the women. Three Olympic, three Olympics for the men and the women. Your your voice is tied into the game, but yet you seem to stay on the national team, stay with the MLS. But if I'm correct, you're also the uh, president of communications and media for the major arena soccer league. So number one, how do you find the time to do that? And number two, what does that role uh, encompass? Well. I must find the time because I'm finding time to talk to you guys, right? So, I, I mean, I wasn't that busy, right? So, I, I, I put aside all my stuff. Um, the indoor soccer, uh, Ray and Ralph, has always been a, a love of mine. That's where I cut my teeth. That's where I learned the most about soccer, probably, because um, when I was doing indoor soccer, we really didn't have an outdoor professional league. There was no MLS. You know, it was mostly you know semi-pro stuff. I think the old ASL was around, but they were not really that relevant. So most of my education came from the indoor game. And when this opportunity came up for myself uh, and friends of mine, Shep Messing and Keith Tozer, to have an active role in this indoor soccer project, we took it. So my 
my role is more on the media side, whether it's website, the the streaming games, you know, advice on um, how to get more exposure for the league. Uh, that's on under me. I, I think all of the major decisions, though, you know, the three of us talk about. I think the the challenge for me from the media side was, and I, I learned this right away when friends of mine asked me, um, "Why am I starting or or being a part?" of a startup league, of a brand new league. And I said, new league, I said, this is like the eighth year. So uh, it didn't get a lot of exposure. So that was the biggest challenge for me, knowing that that people that I knew, even in MLS, thought that this was a new league. So I, I think that that told me that my starting point had to be, you know, down here. And hopefully, you know, you could raise it up. It's not going to be done overnight. Uh, we've been on the job since June, and we see a lot of progress made, but we still have many more levels to get to with the indoor game. One part question to the initial. Give me a favorite moment on the men's side and the women's side of you calling a national team event. Easy to say, and I've said it, I guess. like, in, in, in every speech that I've given, people have asked me for like my greatest moment, and I always give them to you know, that Caligiri goal because uh, – it had the most impact, you know, wasn't my greatest call, but it was, you know, the greatest moment, you know, that I've had on the men's side. I would say that was it. And on the women's side, you know, we, we say the Chastain goal, I mean, the game, right? The, the Women's World Cup final. You know, if I had to think of any other things that I would, you know, put in there, I think that that Carly Lloyd hat trick. 2015 Women's World Cup final against Japan was one of the greatest performances, you know, that I'd ever seen. But, you know, I'm, I'm going back to the old days, I guess. Uh, there have been some bigger goals. There have been some bigger plays. There have been some bigger games. But I don't think any of the work that I've done, any of the games that I've done, have had the impact of what we saw in that 89 qualifier or in that 1999 Women's World Cup final. I'm glad you said that. And we started, we stopped. And it's hard for me. It's hard for me to say it because he's my colleague. And I really don't like the guy, but what the 1990 team accomplished, you know, all those players. When I see these guys, Hawks, Miola, Windeschmidt, Bliss, Ramos, I thank these guys. They made my job easier at Southern Connecticut. They made soccer more important in the country. They made soccer more important at the University of Connecticut. And with Ralph and Coach Ganser and Joe Magnick, you know, I think that that 90 group really doesn't get the credit it deserves for being trendsetters, you know, and uh, we'll never know what would have happened if they didn't qualify, but certainly by them qualifying and on a shoestring budget, they found out what it was like over there, what the challenges were, and that helped, I would imagine, although a whole different set of uh, challenges, I would imagine that helped Bora in 94 and Tab and Johnny and Tony, any of the guys that repeated. So, you know, I do think these guys get overlooked and your voice is synonymous because I remember sitting in my apartment, 1988 in West Haven and seeing the goal and seeing Max Nick jumping up on the sidelines. <laughs> uh, that's a great thing about this day and age, I guess, coach, because, you know, my grandson is too young to know really what I do. Like he's, he's seen me right. on television, but he, he doesn't, you know, really grasp it. But, but someday, whenever, you know, he can watch these games, you know, because those moments live on, right? So, you know, he can realize how big those moments were cool. and, and that I was involved in it. Whereas, 
you know, years ago, um, you know, you wouldn't have that. And and going back to the Caligiuri goal, you know, we we referenced it as being like the shot heard around the world at that point because the U.S. hadn't qualified, you know, in 40 years. But you know, when I give speeches, and I've changed it from the shot heard around the world to the billion dollar goal. And when I say billion dollar goal, I mean think of everything that's happened since then and start adding up the dollars. Right, 1994 World Cup was the most successful World Cup in the history. Of all the World Cups, there were no empty seats. We sold out all of the stadiums. I, I was in Italy in 1990. There were empty seats there, right? And and there's Italy, uh, a hotbed of soccer, right? So, you know, you fast forward to everything else that happened. You know, the from the Nike deal at that point to Major League Soccer starting to a point where soon you'll have 30 teams, all of these soccer stadiums that have been built, all of the training facilities that have been built. The transfers, you know, you start adding up the money. I mean, if if we didn't qualify, you know, for that World Cup, I, I think that, you know, you're still going to host that World Cup, right? Because it was already awarded. But the interest that we had going into that uh, and the sponsors that we created and the sponsors that have come since then have been enormous. And it all started with that Caligiuri goal and, and those kids. I say kids because what was Miola, 19? And, he, and he's playing in the biggest game of his life. And yet, we all had confidence in Tony, right? He had to win the game. A draw, and Trinidad goes in. We didn't know how to, right, Ralph? We didn't know how to play for a draw back then. I, I think we do now, but back then, no way. So I had more confidence in our team knowing that we had to win the game, for sure. And I thought, going into that game, Miola can shut them out. I didn't know who was going to score, but I knew Tony. I knew Tony could shut them out. Well, JP, you're you're spot on in everything you're saying, and you're you're giving a a fantastic soccer history lesson. And I would just add on a little bit because I'm a big fan of the women. That 1991, the women win the first World Cup in China, and then, as you mentioned earlier, the 1999 probably has got to be the most successful women's World Cup in the history of women's World Cups. So that brings me to my next question because I like to. Think about this for you. Name one person you've never worked with who you'd want in the booth with you. <laughs> Besides Ray and, and you? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. That wouldn't uh, be good. Uh, I don't Fox, know. Fox, you guys listening? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Ray's accent would be perfect. Uh, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, I thought about this the other day. I've worked with so many people and I, I started in my head to name the people. I'm not going to do it here because I'm going to forget somebody. But I, I pretty much think I've worked with everybody. Sure. I, I pretty much think I've worked with everybody. And there'd be people that you would know because, you know, you've heard me do the games with them. But you probably didn't know that I, I did a game with the late Walter Barr. You probably didn't know that I did a game where my analyst was Martin Tyler. So. I mean, there are so many people that I've worked games with, whether it's one game or two games or hundreds of games. Uh, so I, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, you know, in the soccer world that I could say to you, yeah, I would like to work, you know, with that person because I, I've pretty much worked with everyone like in this country. Except for you two guys. <laughs> well, one last bit to that question would be if you could call one sports event that you've never done before what would it be 
I've called different uh, sports. You know, I've done Stanley Cup playoff games. I've done some college basketball, but, but let's stick with soccer, I would say. You know, I've done, you know, Olympics. I've done World Cup finals, uh, Olympic finals. So uh, on the soccer side, you know, I think I've done like the biggest events, uh, the world events, like World Cups and, and Olympics, you know, Champions League, all that. But I think if there's anything that I that I hadn't done that I, I would say would I would have an interest in, I would say it would be one of the big derby games, like an Italian derby, because my heritage is is from Italy. So like a, uh, Juventus was always the team that I that I rooted for, like a Juve Torino derby, maybe a, a Roma Lazio, AC Milan Inter or like a Rangers Celtic game, you know, one, one of those big derbies around the world, a Clasico in, in Spain, like a, a Barcelona, Real Madrid. I'm, those are games that I would say would love to do in person. I, I've done some of those, you know, Italian derby games, but, but off of a monitor in, in Bristol, Connecticut in my ESPN days. But I would say, you know, being in a stadium in Italy, calling one of those derby games would be fantastic. Well, look, I want to, th- I want to thank you on behalf of me and Ralph uh, for joining us, as Ralph said so eloquently, you're one of the top historians on the game in the country. You've called the biggest games for both genders in the country, and we're blessed to have you on today. And uh, to top it all off, you're a good guy, good person. So thank you very much for spending time with us today. Guys, it's absolutely my pleasure. Take care, JP. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening for The Love of the Game. If you like this show, please give us a rating and a review. Share this with all the social medias and tell your friends. This podcast was produced by Earfluence, and I'm Ralph Perez. And I'm Ray Reed, and we'll talk to you again soon on For the Love of the Game.